So how about you guys open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We've been in a series going through the Gospel of John, and we are now at chapter 8. If you guys were not here last week, I'm going to pray real quick um, and just jump in. If you guys don't have Bibles, go ahead and raise your hand. We've got some ushers that would love to get your Bible. If you don't own it, go ahead and keep it. It's our gift to you guys. We love you. I want you to have Scripture. Read it. Most importantly, read it. Don't just, you know, stick it in the back of the car and forget about it. You know, just use it or give it away. That's cool. It's whatever you want to do, but... Uh, um, I'm going to pray real quick, and then we're going to jump in and get to work. we got a lot uh, to cover this morning. Today's going to be unique. Um, I'll, I'll just say that as a little bit of a segue. I've never, ever taught the content. I mean, I, I, everything's usually pretty fresh every week. But I've truly never taught anything when I'm going to be teaching here in just a moment. So we'll get into that in just a moment. Um, let me pray, and we'll get in taking a look at this. So, uh, Jesus, right now we just commit our time, our hearts, our lives to you. We pray, God, that you would just uh, give us eyes to see uh, and ears to hear what the Holy Spirit speaks. Um, God, help my words to be able to uh, articulate what's on your heart, what's on your mind, um, so that we would be ultimately transformed and changed. We, we look to you, Jesus, as the author and the, uh, the perfecter of our lives, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week we kind of started a... A sermon and didn't end it. So that's kind of like today is like part two. I'm not really calling it part two. It's basically just one lengthy sermon. Um, I'm not going to make too much of an illusion as to what I looked at last week. I will kind of give a brief little highlight. My recommendation would be just go to our website or go onto our podcast, there's Calvary So, um, and kind of search that and then go ahead and listen to that at some point today. Um, but last week, uh, I mentioned the name of the title of this particular teaching is um, self-deception and groupthink, or the dangers of self-deception and groupthink. It's a big idea here. And what we said is that there were these religious leaders in Jesus' day who were tasked with the responsibility of communicating um, the, the, the Torah, the teachings of uh, the Bible to their generation. And uh, here Jesus shows up in their generation, and they reject Jesus. They don't like Jesus. They are threatened by Jesus, um, much in the same way that you and I, as modern people, can be uh, threatened and offended and frustrated by Jesus. And much in the same way, what you and I as modern people can do is, is we look for ways to silence Jesus or even have him killed. And so um, this is what these early followers um, of Yahweh did. They were, again, like I said, they were important to the fabric of Judaism, but they missed the big mark. And this is the key thing. So the religious leaders of Jesus' day um, were really in a state of self-deception. They should have known who God was. They should have walked in relationship with God. But unfortunately, they were totally self-deceived. They were part of the larger groupthink. And the groupthink was one that um, had misinformation about who Jesus was or lies as to who Jesus was. And so I think it's important for us just to think about real quickly, and this is a brief like recap of some of this. Number one, we see that they were deceived because they were they thought they were free. They thought they were free, but in reality, they were actually slaves to sin, Jesus tells them in verses 34 to 38. They thought that God, Yahweh God, was their father, but Jesus actually tells them, no, actually, the devil is your father. He tells them that in chapter 8, verses 39 to 47. Again, I'll recap. Today, this is all fresh stuff that we're going to look at here right now. What we're going to look at here today is they thought that Jesus was actually aligned with the devil. And yet, in reality, they were the ones that were aligned with evil or the devil. Um, and then ultimately, it was Jesus himself that was actually honored by God. So the big takeaway I want for us to think about this is as we approach God or approach our understanding as to what we think God is or how we think God should be in alignment— is our understanding of God something that reflects rightly his revelation, or are we just kind of, you know, making up as we go? 
Are we kind of creating sort of a bespoken type of a religion, a little mixtape religion as to what we think? We'll take a little bit of Jesus from over here. We'll borrow a little bit of uh, Eastern mysticism from over here or borrow another type of animism from over here. We'll kind of create them all together in sort of a hodgepodge and we'll call this Christianity. And what I would suggest to you is just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we might be in danger of actually creating and crafting our own false religion or false notions about God and nurturing those things. And yet Jesus has some really strong words to say to these people. And I think those same words would definitely apply to us as we think about this. So that's why I want for us to just consider with regard to holding on in the back of our mind. I want to jump in and take a look at a couple of passage here, passages here, which I'll read. So we'll pick it up, we'll kind of dovetail a little bit this as to what Jesus said in chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He goes on to say, and again, this is just sort of like some elements within a larger verse. You, there's a very, very lengthy passage. I would just encourage you on your own time to read the, the majority of it. He goes on to say he was a murderer and he was a liar and he's the father of lies. So what Jesus is going to say is that, that as the devil lies and as you guys lie, you're just basically bearing testimony that the devil is your father. In other words, the concept that I think Jesus is conveying here, it's like father, like son. You're acting like your father. You claim Yahweh, God, is your father, but you don't look like Yahweh. You don't act like Yahweh. You don't abide by the way that Yahweh wants you to live. Because if you did, you would be loving me. You'd be worshiping me. You'd be accepting and trusting and orienting the sum total of your life around me, but you're not. And Jesus' whole point is, is don't miss this. You're, you're living in a self-delusion, thinking that you belong to the God is God is your father, but in reality, Satan, the devil, is your father. It goes on down in verse forty-eight, and then Jews answered him, he said, "You are a Samaritan, and you have a demon." So the word Samaritan there is a reference to a people group that, for the most part, uh, these that were living with that region of Judea, they hated. Um, so yes, there was an undertone of racism that was there uh, and nationalistic pride that was kind of fueling this, but they basically called Jesus, "You're you're a Samaritan." You're kind of a witch, voodoo, practicing, weird, hodgepodge form of religion. You're not devoted to Yahweh God. So this is their accusation. They're basically uh, describing Jesus as someone that is not authentic or not devoted to Yahweh God. And then he goes on to say, just in case you sense any ambiguity in what they're trying to say, then they're going to say, and, and you have a demon, which is, which is pretty, pretty blatant. Like you are actually influenced by the dark realm. Go, verse 49, so then Jesus, Jesus answered them and said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me, and I do not seek my own glory, but the one who seeks it, uh, it is, he is the judge. Uh, next slide. He goes on to say in verse 51, 52, says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon, because Abraham died, and his prophets Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So do you follow a little bit of the logic here? That Jesus is saying, if anyone follows me, they will never taste death or see death. And so what they're thinking, like, well, wait a minute, Abraham died. The prophets, they all died. They, they obviously are either, A, not following Jesus, or if they did follow Jesus, then Jesus is a false prophet. So they're looking for angles to basically say that Jesus, you cannot be trusted. We can be trusted. Our understanding as to how Judaism works can be trusted, but you can't be trusted because you are a Samaritan and you have a demon. Um, next slide. Then Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. 
It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say to you, I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. I don't know how you think about Jesus, but this should cause you to pause a little bit. Because most of us think of Jesus being this really, really nice guy. Sometimes Jesus can say some things that are deeply intended to just kind of poke and prod. He's like, just like you guys are liars. But I do know God. I do know him. And I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So, just in case you miss the um, anxiety and the frustration that's been mounting, uh, John tells us this little clue as to what's really happening in their hearts. He says, so they picked up stones to kill him, and then Jesus fled. All right, so this is kind of the climactic end. Next slide. As we jump into this, I'll read this quote in just two seconds here. But one of the things that I want for us to just kind of pause and think about, because on a couple or many different occasions, this idea of devil or demons gets honorable mention. And what I thought it would be important for us, again, I don't want to have any certain expectation that we all know exactly what Jesus is talking about when he uses the phrase demons or devils. Um, but what I want for us to do, since the mention of devil happens on these multiple occasions, um, and it coincides with what Jesus says, um, you're living in a deception. Um, I want to take a little bit of time to do a little bit of a historical deep dive into this shadowy character that's identified as the devil. Now, C.S. Lewis famously said um, these important words uh, in his book, Screwtape Letters. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which the race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, demons, they themselves are equally pleased with both errors. And they hail a, they hail a materialist and or a magician with the same delight. So it doesn't matter, C.S. Lewis is saying, whether or not you are a materialist, meaning you only believe in the material world and scientific, scientism, um, and you are like, I don't believe in fairy tales. I don't certainly believe in demons and little dudes in red suits with, you know, scales and tails and stuff like that. I don't believe in that because I'm, I'm a scientist. Or you can be on the opposite end of that, be like, yeah, of course, I totally believe in animation or animism, and I worship this little guy, and I have incantations, and I cast spells, and I do all. So his whole point is that it doesn't matter. Satan loves both of y'all. Because his whole aim is either to be completely out in the open and aware, uh, where everybody knows him, or completely concealed behind uh, closed doors where he's able to work and do things in sleuth. So this is the same thing. Thing that I think C.S. Lewis wants to draw our attention to. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to jump in. I'm going to take a real deep dive. It's not, I should actually back up a little bit. It's not going to be a deep dive. It's going to be a high fly. That's what it's going to be. So it's deep dive, meaning we're going to spend six hours looking at this because we could do that, but we're not. Um, it's going to be more high fly over all of this, and it'll be very fast and very brief. And so if you are taking notes, please write this step down because I don't have a whole lot of slides that are going to support this. But I want to first spend the majority of our time just kind of thinking about this from a biblical history point. So this goes all the way back in ancient Judaism, all the way to the time of Jesus. I'll go through these real quickly. Number one, we see at the very, very beginning of the Bible, page one of your Bibles, we are introduced to this serpent. We don't know exactly who the serpent is, but what we do know is that whoever this serpent is at the beginning of the story, he has dubious intentions, and his aim is to somehow get um, Eve and Adam to basically distrust Yahweh God, his intentions, and then get them to basically violate uh, 
the, the statement or the word or the command that God had given. So we see that the serpent tempts Eve. In the beginning of Job, uh, Job chapter 1, we're, talk, uh, we're told about this devil that actually terrorizes Job. He's the one that kind of sculpts or crafts or has this schematic as to how Job's life is going to unfold in a various form of chaos. Uh, by the time we get to the New Testament, there's a lot of other passages that we could have covered, but we're not. Um, uh, by the time you get to the New Testament throughout the Gospels, one of the very first introductions of this is you see Jesus in the desert or the wilderness, and he's being tempted by the devil um, to disobey God or to turn stones into bread. And these are different ways in which he's tempted by the devil. By the time you get into the, the writings of the New Testament, say, for example, like Peter, he was one of the followers of Jesus. He writes in First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he instructs followers of Jesus. He says, stay alert because the devil, your enemy. So Peter's pretty unambiguous about this. He says, look, the, the devil, he's not your friend. He's not like your little co-pilot. He's actually your enemy. He has a scheme, an aim, an agenda, a tactic in your life, and it's to bring about havoc and destruction and ruin and terrorization upon your life. And these are a couple passages I want to read next. First John chapter 3, verse 8. John, the writer, the same guy who is actually writing the book that we're reading right now, he says, it's the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. So he links sinfulness or sinful activities or rebellion with the devil. Why? Because that's what the devil has been known for. He is a rebel. He is out to basically create a, a team of rebels. And he goes on to say, uh, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. The devil has been sinning from the very beginning. Um, if you missed last week, I, I, I took a kind of a deep dive into really even thinking about the word sin. So again, just for the sake of referencing what sin means, I go into a lengthy detail or description as to what it means last week. And this is the reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. I love this passage, by the way, because it gives us a mission statement of Jesus. In case you ever wonder, like, what did Jesus come to earth to do? John tells us, here's the mission statement. Right, the aim of Jesus was to destroy or to uh, ruin, to bring sabotage to the actual works of the devil. Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, uh, makes reference to this great dragon. It says, the great dragon was thrown down. Just in case you're wondering, who's the great dragon? Well, he tells you. It was the ancient serpent. Well, who's the ancient serpent? Again, we just read Genesis chapter 1, gives us a little bit of in, in, uh, information. And this is where we link the connection between the dragon, the serpent, and the devil. He goes on to say, who is called the devil? The devil, uh, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels and demons, or angels and or in parentheses, demons alongside with him. So what the biblical idea or cosmology reveals to us about who the devil is, he's this creature. Um, and if you want to think of it in a couple different ways, uh, within the biblical framework, the devil is basically this rebellious spiritual being. He's, he's spiritual, meaning he's not physical. He's a rebellious spiritual being. He's an evil influencer. So we think about, you know, influencers today. Um, he was an influencer before there was even influencers, which might, should cause us to kind of like ask the question, like, how do people get such powerful influence? I don't know. He maybe learned it from the original dude, you know. But bottom line is he was an evil influencer. Um, and lastly, we were also informed that he is kind of the ultimate antagonist. His number one aim is to basically upset or throw into chaos everything that God, the God of order, has sought to set in motion. Uh, one scholar describes Satan as um, the worker of anti-creation. God is the God of creation and new creation. Satan, the devil, is an agent of anti-creation. Takes whatever God has done and formed and created life and beauty and goodness out of it, and he takes it and destroys it and scrambles it and ruins it, and casts viruses into it, and, ruin, and, and brings about chaos. This is what the devil, throughout biblical cosmology, seems to think about. Now, 
Let's jump forward a little bit into what's commonly known as the medieval period. Uh, during the medieval period, uh, you can learn a lot, actually, by the way, from artists. Artists um, and playwrights and people that have, would uh, uh, create and craft uh, the variety of arts tell us a lot about their perceptions. And so uh, during this particular time period, there was a lot of art that was being done or depicted. Um, I think this image right here is actually a very famous one by a guy named Michael Potter, Potter and he just, he is a painting of St. Augustine, if you're familiar with him, and he was uh, being confronted by the devil. So in from this particular painting, what we learned is that um, the, the devil in the mind of someone that lived at least in the 1400s uh, was, was this grotesque, beast-like figure that would oftentimes come, might even take sort of a bodily shape, but the point of the matter is, but oftentimes uh, a beastly type of a figure with horns, scales, wings. Um, this is oftentimes how artists had depicted them. Um, if you're unfamiliar even further with Dante, Dante's Inferno, you realize that within this incredibly brilliant, brilliant uh, bit of literature, uh, he casts a lot of like unique images. In fact, I would go so far as that many of the images that we have about the devil today are kind of formed by Dante's... Uh, uh, poetic imagery. You can also think about, I'm going to just quickly make honorable mention of Asian, African, Native, Amer- Native American cultures. Each one of these have some degree of a variety of forms of demons um, that takes the shape of various forms of witchcraft or magic or what's commonly known as animism. The idea that spirits or um, uh, not good spirits, bad spirits might live within certain things that are alive and in order to appease them, uh, you offer certain sacrifices and whatnot. And all of these ancient and or modern uh, parts of the world have various forms of this. In fact, uh, you can go to various parts of the world and see this type of stuff actually still continue to play out. Now, skip forward to what's commonly known as the Age of the Renaissance. This is around the 1500s to 1600s, oftentimes known as the Age of Discovery. You guys doing okay, by the way? Am I talking too fast? All right, um, I'm, I'm not going to slow it down because I got a lot of stuff I got to cover. So you can go back, listen to the message, and slow it down. That's kind of what I do, but a lot of times I listen to stuff sped up. But anyways, we're going to take a look at the age of Renaissance. Hopefully this is helpful for you. Like I said, my main idea is to kind of create a little bit of a history so that we can get to where we're at today and how we think about the devil. Because, because it matters, because Jesus says, I don't want you to be deceived. So that's the big idea. So the age of Renaissance, um, we begin to see, especially from the art and the poetry and the uh, those of that particular era, uh, they would create a little bit more of a human form with beastly features. So you might have kind of like the, the, the body of a human being, you know, strong chest and like kind of like weird goat-like, you know, figurine from below the waist. And so this kind of half beast, half human type of form, um, these were oftentimes seen within the formation of the arts of that day. There is a legend uh, known as the legend of Dr. Faust, a writing, some of you are sure familiar with this, and this story has been retold on a lot of different, by a lot of different writers. Um, but the legend of Dr. Faust originally was kind of this idea of a guy, he was a dissatisfied scholar, and he, he basically gets confronted by the devil, and he makes his pledge to the devil. And the pledge that he makes to the devil is ultimately in ex- an exchange for endless pleasure, endless pleasure, um, with the help of a demon by the name of Mephistopheles. And he basically comes along, he's an he's a agent of the devil, and his job is to basically help Faust accomplish all of his lifetime goals. And quickly, Faust moves into a realm of possessing sexual pleasure, power, and wealth. Sexual pleasure, power, and wealth. Hold on to that. Pleasure, power, and wealth. Sexual pleasure. Sexual, sex, power, and money. Do one thing but that way. 
Um, today, in fact, today's, today's language, you may have heard of the phrase, a Faustian bargain. Um, it's not uncommon to kind of hear that. It basically means it's a deal in which some person sacrifices their personal integrity for sex, power, and money. Um, and again, it's not uncommon. And it's hard to know for sure. Are, are people just saying just to get, raise eyebrows? But some people will say, I sold my soul to the devil. That literally comes from Faust. It's the whole idea that comes from that. Skip forward a little bit to the Age of Enlightenment. Um, this was an intellectual movement that oftentimes emphasized reason and science. In other words, things that could be tested or observed. And because, I don't know if you know if you figured this out or not yet, demons actually can't be thrown into test tubes and you can observe them. So within this particular Age of Enlightenment, it kind of led people to just within that framework to assume that not only was, quote-unquote, God on the verge of dying, God dead, but also same thing with, with demons. We couldn't test it. We couldn't prove it. We couldn't advocate for it. So therefore, it must be relegated to the realm where Santa Claus lives or the Easter Bunny. In other words, it's just a fairy tale. We can't hold any confidence that these things actually exist. So this took place during the Age of Enlightenment. Skip forward the age of romanticism. I like to think of it this way. Satan or the devil had a rise, fall, and a rise again. Rise, fall, and rise again. So a resurrection, if you would. I wouldn't use that word to necessarily describe the devil. The devil has a rise again within the age of romanticism. If you're unfamiliar with the, many of the writers of the age of romanticism, it's like Jane Austen and lots of other fantastic writers of that particular era. But Satan also had this incredible, like, Revival, if you would, um, within this particular region. Um, what's fascinating about the formation of the devil in this particular age of Romanticism is as he reappears or reemerges, he actually reemerges as basically a hero. Now, listen to how this plays out. He's a hero who defies higher power in pursuit of, quote-unquote, essential truth. Essential truth to what? His truth. His truth. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. With tragic consequences... With tragic consequences. Um, one uh, writer of occult, actually his own words, again, he's not a Christian, he's, he's an occultist. He actually describes it this way. Satanism is not a part of romanticism. Roman- it, it is romanticism. <laughs> his whole point. It is romanticism. It may well be said that the devil was the patron saint of the era of romanticism. Again, this is a, a Satanist, the cultist that basically said Satan basically owned the period of romanticism. In what way? Well, he comes out on top as a hero. He, he's, the, he's the one that, that basically thumps his chest, stands against the oppressive hegemonic power, which in this case, who would that be? Come on, guys. Jesus, God, good. Jesus. He stands against God, Jesus, right? And he basically does what Satan does. He defies. But rather than being seen as the bad guy, the evil one, the evil influencer, he's actually seen as the one that stands. He's like, he's the ultimate punk rocker, right? He stands up. He does everything in his power to basically push down the hegemonic power, i.e. God. And therefore, he reigns and rules by the sake of his own power. So again, I just find it fascinating that he kind of moves in this realm of being viewed as somewhat of a hero. Now, I want to jump in a little bit into modernity and or popular culture in which day and age in which we live in today. This kind of gets where it gets kind of fascinating. Because again, like I said, most of us tend to not to spend a whole lot of time thinking about the devil. Or if we do, we just don't give it a whole lot of attention or time. So what's fascinating is you need to know a little bit about a guy by the name of Aleister Crawley. If you're not familiar with him, you can just Google him or search him out, and it's kind of fascinating. His history is kind of fascinating. He was probably deemed as one of the most important figures in today's uh, modern occult uh, experiences. 
He was the founder of a particular religion called Familia, I think is what it's called. And he was an important figure with regard to this. He actually coined the phrase, if you're familiar with it, called do what thou wilt. Do what thou wilt. It basically is another way. It's within his book of laws. I've read that several times actually past summer, which is kind of weird. I don't know why. But I was just like, I got to read this guy. I was fascinated by it. So it's kind of what I do sometimes. I'll read a book a couple times. And I read this a couple times. I was like, ah, it's so fascinating. But do what thou wilt is a basic modern terminology, which we use today. Live according to your self-expressed self. That, this, that, was, that all comes from his mindset. Um, he taught spiritual enlightenment. Uh, that had arisen from transgressing the sociosexual norms. He was known as a guy that was not, uh, it was not foreign for him to engage in rape or, uh, sexual behaviors that were completely outside of the norms. He was a very strong advocate for homosexual identities and I, I, uh, expressions. He was a very, very strong advocate for this type of stuff. Um, he advocated for drug usage as an aid to mysticism and or the usage of magic. And again, it's important to know, know a little bit about why magic was even done. Magic was a way of manipulating the world around us so that if you say the right words or create the right incantations or kind of cast the right spells. You can actually control the way someone else thinks, how they act, how they operate. It was a way of uh, operating influence by way of spiritual entities. Uh, he was actually, this is again, just another like interesting like bit of information. He was the main guy. In fact, just you can follow this up stream and realize that he was the main guy that actually introduced Eastern yoga practices to the United States. It's kind of fascinating. Um, he also recognized that there was a high level of influence among, uh, well, we see as well within modern culture, he was a, he is a high level of influence among those within the entertainment business. So music, uh, Hollywood, and so on and so forth. If you're familiar with a guy by the name of Anton LaVey, um, he actually founded what's called the Church of Satan, which is actually in San Francisco. So all I want to say is this, is that we live in California. California has been under the mist of incredible influence by way of devil type of concepts. Now, again, I, I don't say any of this to like, you know, shock anyone or anything like that. In fact, what I, what I don't want to do is I want to, I'll go into the next little slide. Um, th- these are just different ways in which uh, satanic practices have kind of made their way into modern culture. Now, I want to be really clear here. I'm not saying that these people are straight up worshiping Satan. I want to be really clear about that. I, I also realize how art works. Some of these people might just be using art as a means of just like shock and awe, right? It's, you know, I, I look, I grew up in the 80s. So if you're familiar with the 80s, like that was the era of like heavy metal, dudes with long hair, wearing really weird tight clothes, clothing. And, and, and it was, it was popular for like Ozzy Osbourne to bite the head off of a, of a bat and be like, I'm worshiping Satan. And it's like, it sells records, right? So I'm not naive to the fact that some of this stuff can oftentimes be simply used for shock value. Um, in fact, someone had even coined the phrase, the satanic panic that took place in the 1970s and 80s, um, where people kind of see a demon behind everything and symbolism and everything. And it, so I'm, 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 I say this type of stuff very cautiously, and it's one that has a lot of skepticism and cynicism for that, you know, see the devil behind every little facet um, where someone shows up on the screen, and they're just like, hey, what's up? Like, all the matter, people are like, he just waved the devil things and he's going to hell he's a satanist and it's, to me it's like i i don't i don't know that but and i don't want to like lean towards that so i want to be really cautious about this but what i do want to suggest is at some point you just kind of have to step back and say why is this stuff ubiquitous like why is it everywhere like wh- why why is it not like like um i don't know fairy tales or you know humpty dumpty or 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 even jesus like why is it not like why does it always come why does it always sometimes kind of deviate in towards this? Why is it so throughout the culture as a whole? 
Um, again, some would suggest it sells. Possible. There's a commercial value to that. It's very possible. Um, and I, and I don't want to, I don't want to like pull away from that possibility that might be the case. But the fact of the matter is, is it's there. Why is it there? I don't know. I'm not drawing any conclusion, but I'm just simply wanting to point out the big E on the eye chart that it is there. Satan has not left our culture. He's very much alive. He's very much powerful and he very much has some degree of influence over the culture in which we live in today. Um, so with that being said, I want to wrap it up with some final thoughts. What does any of this matter? Like, why does this even matter? Why even bring this up? Let me put it into a particular question that I have written up here. What would an individual or culture look like under the deceptive influence of the devil? Again, many of us in America and California and San Francisco on the Central Coast would not be like overtly, yes, I worship Satan. Though that has actually become more and more popular. Um, I follow several people that are overt occultists who deeply uh, live according to the, the very words of Anton LaVey and Alistair Crawley and kind of deem these these guys as 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 truly insightful agents who've been able to basically channel information from another world into our world. They they are high priestesses that live according to this that exercise these types of things. They they're alive. They actually exist, and they're part of society and culture. But the point that I would make is this: is that what would it in terms of this question? What would an individual or culture look like under this influence? And I would suggest to you this is exactly what it would look like. It would look like a loyalty or a devotion to sexual gratification. And I would kind of play this out in terms of sex or sexual identity. Think about how much of an emphasis sexual identity has upon the uh, has a grip upon our culture. Why? Why? Why is pornography such a massively, massively impacting? cultural phenomenon it makes more money than anything we've been studying the effects of this in fact feminist movements today i mean i would even add non-christian feminist movements they have no agenda to somehow push jesus or communicate god or even approach this from a moralistic perspective they're saying that pornography has destroyed women that it's not good for society but again, we've opened a Pandora's box as a culture that we don't know how to stuff the garbage back into it. And we see this in these other things that play out. Self-fulfillment. What is self-fulfillment? Or this idea of self-actuation. It's, it's another form of just like power. Exercising power. Exercising self-will. Somehow being able to advance one's own agenda. Do what thou wilt. Which is this phrase from... Alistair Crawley, that has become very widely recognized, which I don't know if you caught one of the little photos that was up there. Jay-Z actually has a clothing line, and on it says, do it thou wilt. And again, maybe for shock value, maybe for means of just like, like uh, you know, uh, selling goods. I don't know, but I'm just simply making the point there is an absolute connection between all of this stuff that's happened within our culture that would be linked to the devil. Whether we ignore him or whether we promote him, he doesn't really care. But he, all he wants is to inject into a culture and society his values, his values. So lastly, is we see this idea, this obsession with success, wealth, influence at all costs. We talked about this a little bit last week, this idea of what's called uh, Machiavellianism, this idea of obtaining success and power at all costs. And this type of worldview infects everything. And I would suggest to you, if you Call yourself, why this matters? Why this matters? I'm going to bring this back home to the big important thing to just consider. Why this matters is because if we claim allegiance to Jesus, 
while at the same time saying, all I care about is making sure that I live into the fullness of my sexual identity or have sex with as many people as I want in any way that I want, however that I choose, because it's my body, my choice. I can do that with my sexuality however I want, as long as it's with a consulting adult, yada, yada, yada. Uh, if we hold on to the idea of self-fulfillment, that I can accomplish anything and everything by my own self-empowerment, or the mindset of just like, I will just somehow grab a hold of success at all costs, no matter what. I would suggest to you, we are living according to values that are in alignment with the devil. That doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. It means that you're in confusion. If you are a Christian, it means you have to identify these things and realize maybe these are characteristic traits that I've imbibed by the culture around me. And rather than resisting the culture and fighting the culture and clinging to Jesus, I've imbibed these things. I've been influenced by them. Again, guys, we live in California. I say that often. We are in literally the very eye of the storm of demonic activity on planet Earth. Okay? So, I get it why we might not always be aware of it. I get it. I get it why we may want to minimize it. But we can't live in naivety forever. Jesus is pretty clear. Our eternity is actually at stake as a result of how we live. So the question that I want to finish with is simple. How can we be freed from this cycle of self-deception? And again, I just remind you, like I did last week, Jesus says this in John chapter 8, 31. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's literally no way to freedom. But Satan's really good at this. The devil is really good at basically saying, oh, if you give yourself to Jesus, you're no longer free. You're actually a slave. And that's a partial truth. True, you are a slave. But you are a slave to the one who gives you freedom, who purchases you from your enslavement and sets you free to be the fullness of who you truly are, shaped by him. You're never truly, truly free until you are truly freed by Jesus. And Jesus tells you how this happens, abiding in his word. You say, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't trust the Bible. Then we got a discipleship problem here. Because really what we're saying in something along these lines is that I like my theory of Jesus, but his words I distrust. And I would push back and ask, under what authority? And then you would have to say, under my authority. And at some point you have to ask, well, who's the ultimate authority here? Jesus or you? And at some point you have to just recognize, oh, I'm the ultimate authority. And I'm choosing to either trust Jesus or distrust Jesus, but in this context, I'm choosing to distrust Jesus. And at that point, we have to simply look at it and say, then Jesus really isn't Lord functionally. He's not Lord functionally. You, you are Lord functionally. So the invitation for us is to simply listen to and hear the words of Jesus. And my hope will be to find incredible value in them, life-giving, soul-saving value. That in the life of Jesus comes a radical transformation of the entirety of our lives. And it brings us to a state of freedom, true freedom. Whereas everything else in this world is a various form, a various spin on enslavement. So with that, I'm going to conclude. I'm going to have 
Mikey, come on up, and he's going to close us out in a song. And I want to invite you guys to just stand with me as we close, as I pray over us right now, and as we sing this last song. If you're here and you need prayer for anything, we want to pray for you. But my real invitation to you is just kind of in this, I don't stand, and just invite you to lift up your voice to this God who liberates, sets us free, and invites us to follow him with the sum total of all that we have and all that we are to discover the freedom that he promised to these people thousands of years ago. And he continues to this day to give us everything that we need. So let me pray, and we'll sing. Uh, Jesus, right now we come to you, and we just ask you, would you just take this time, take our hearts, take us where we're at, receive us, and give us strength, give us hope, give us freedom. God, I pray for any here right now that might be far from you. And if you are here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you've been wrestling through the claims of Jesus, or maybe you have had an encounter at some point, or you've trusted Jesus, and yet you are very much so in kind of the, the cross current of a desire to walk with Jesus, but at the same time, radically influenced just by the culture and the world around you, and you're trying to make sense of it. So the net effect of your soul is just one of constant dissatisfaction. You have enough of Jesus where you're really not happy in the world. You have enough of the world where you're really not happy in Jesus. The invitation to you is to just to, to trust Jesus completely. You might not even know exactly what that looks like. And we want to pray with you and help you. But I want to pray for you if that's you. Um, I'm not going to ask you to do anything. Just in your own heart, just repeat these words after me as we just pray them. So Jesus, right now, come into my soul, into my heart, and be the king over everything. The chaos, the pain, the hurt, the confusion. Take all of it and make me new. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. And make me yours, entirely yours. And help me to walk in a way that just follows you with all the strength and energy that I have been given by the Holy Spirit.